If you would uh, <coughs> turn back to the uh, passage that we looked at a little earlier uh, on page 1053, and we'll be looking at uh, specifically at uh, Luke chapter 19 in the first 10 verses. Luke chapter 19. Communities become gripped with popular events, don't they? For example, uh, as I know from our own household, in the last week, the Welsh have been on tenterhooks, awaiting the outcome of the rugby quarter-final. For those energetic, in the last few weeks, the newspapers have been full of articles both anticipating and then analysing the outcome of the great British bake-off. Similarly, events like a royal wedding, a celebrity tour, they all bring crowds out onto the street. It grips the public imagination. In these cases, those who would normally only have a, a passing interest in the event They develop an encyclopedic knowledge overnight and are ready to express their opinions at every opportunity. Twitter and social media buzz with comments as events unfold. Now, television and social media may be 21st century phenomena, but the effects of a popular event gripping the nation's imagination is not a new thing. Twenty centuries ago, one man was causing quite a stir in northern Israel, and that man was Jesus. With profound teaching and dramatic miracles, his fame had spread abroad, and this man, Jesus, had become quite a celebrity by the time we read of him here in Luke chapter 19. Now we're coming towards the end of the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus. And although the purpose of God in this last journey is hidden, we read, uh, to the disciples, we find Jesus setting off on this last journey to Jerusalem here in Luke chapter 18. Now today, if you were to go there, you can't take the route that Jesus would have. Um, politics in the Middle East, get in the way, but uh, at that time, Jesus would have gone down beside the, uh, from the, uh, from Galilee, down beside the River Jordan, before striking up through Jericho, up towards Jerusalem. In places, that was a lonely road. And we read elsewhere in the, uh, in the Gospels of a man, an isolated traveller, falling into the hands of thieves there. But for Jesus on his journey, he wasn't exposed to such lonely travels. Because by the time we read in, in, uh, in Luke 18 and verse 36, we find a blind man sitting behind the, beside the road, hearing the great crowd, the great multitude accompanying Jesus. Had the Galilee Gazette been in print at that time, 
Jesus would have been on the front page. He was the talk of the town. And anyone who had a slightest interest in what was going on would have heard the news that Jesus of Nazareth was on the move. And his reputation went before him. The leper had been cleansed, children were being blessed, profound teaching was being uttered. They might not have known why he was there, but that didn't matter. There was great excitement. Everyone wanted to catch a glimpse of him. And then we read in uh, at the end of chapter 18 there of this encounter, this remarkable encounter with the beggar. And in front of the assembled crowd, Christ restores the man's sight. And the crowd then are ecstatic. Uh, the man, his, uh, his sight restored, follows Jesus praising God. All the people, when they saw it, they praised him too, we read in verse 43. So this then is the scene as Jesus comes into Jericho. Although his journey had a very serious purpose to it, in some ways he was appearing as a, almost as a celebrity as he enters Jericho. But then as we come to Luke chapter 19, we find that the, the scene changes and we're introduced to Zacchaeus. And I'd like to spend just a few moments this evening thinking about him. We look at it under the account under three headings, compelled by curiosity, called by name, and then confirmed by actions. Look at the first few verses of chapter 19. Jesus entered Jericho and he, he, he was passing through. And a man there by the name of Zacchaeus, he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy, He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. I have quite a lot of sympathy for Zacchaeus. He he was a man of short stature. Put him in a crowded room, and everyone would look across the top of him. Put him in a crowd... Not only would no one notice him, but he struggled to see what was going on. But you know, in truth, it wasn't just his stature that isolated him from the rest of the townspeople, those who were flocking to see Jesus. Because Zacchaeus, we read, was an infamous member of the local community. Not lauded as one of the pillars of society, but despised as a tool of the Romans in their oppression of the people. Last Sunday morning, Andy looked at the story of Jesus calling Matthew. And Andy explained the role of the tax collector in Roman society there. We saw how they were viewed as collaborators, as quislings in the pay of the Roman Empire, and who used that position to their own advantage. And just as Matthew was this despised tax collector, so too Zacchaeus had this dubious role in society. But it's important to realise that these men weren't just despised, a bit like perhaps the media today might despise bankers or politicians. If you want to get a measure of where the tax collector stood in society... 
you can look back in Matthew 18, and here Jesus is speaking of how you should treat a brother who sins. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and show him fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So you see, the tax collector had turned his back on God. He was the equivalent of a pagan. And when we come to Zacchaeus here in chapter 19, we find he's not even just a tax collector, for he is described as the chief tax collector. If Matthew was a sinner, then Zacchaeus is his boss, he's the chief of sinners. Now we don't know a great deal about Zacchaeus. He was, he's got a Jewish name, and we know that in his role as a tax collector, he was a collaborator with the Roman administration. We're told that he was wealthy, and there's enough later on in the passage to suggest that in discharging his role as the chief tax collector, he twisted things to his own advantage on plenty of occasions. The picture we've got is of someone who's openly siding with the enemy, not averse to using this position to better himself, but most importantly, of someone who has cut himself off from his fellow Jewish people by his choices made. Perhaps more accurately, his sin had cut him off from them and from God. So you see, Zacchaeus wasn't just lost, uh, wasn't just lost in the crowd because of his height. He was a social outcast because of his sin. And he had no place in the community of God's people round about him. Notwithstanding this, Jesus is in town and he wants to see him, just like everybody else. So uh, showing some ingenuity, we're told that he runs along the road that Jesus to take and climbs into a tree to gain a better vantage point. What is it that drives Zacchaeus to do this? Is he just following the crowd? Is he just doing what everyone else is doing? In one sense, it seems as if it's little other than a, a bit of curiosity that's driving him to find out what all the fuss is about, about this Jesus who everyone's talking about. Now, we don't know for certain what motivated Zacchaeus to want to see Jesus, but the manner in which the story plays out assures us that it wasn't mere chance that drove him to that tree. It was God who stirred the the curiosity in him. It was God who motivated him to run down the road. He was wearing probably the... uh, first century equivalent of an Italian suit and Gucci shoes. And yet God moved him to forget his inhibitions and climb that particular tree like a schoolboy. And God used the simplest of things, a little curiosity to speak with him and ultimately 
lead him to his sound conversion. What can we learn from that? Well, the first is a salutary reminder of the effect of sin, isn't it? We believe that man was made to glorify God and enjoy him forever, but sin takes us away from that purpose. And like Zacchaeus, if we are not following that purpose, we will have a sad and lonely life, an unsatisfied life, if our sin is not dealt with. And perhaps the second little lesson one can learn from that is that God uses very insignificant events sometimes to speak both to us and also to those who are far from God. So if you have family or friends who don't believe, be encouraged that God is able to speak to them really through all manner of circumstances. Let's look on then, though, in... uh, in this passage in verses 5 to 7. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he is gone to be the guest of a sinner. The account of what happened when Zacchaeus, when Jesus reaches the tree is remarkable, isn't it? You can imagine the crowd making its way down the road towards Zacchaeus' vantage point. The crowd swirling around Jesus. Zacchaeus is in his tree, hoping possibly to catch a glimpse of Jesus. Will he see him? Will he not? And then two remarkable things happen. Firstly, we read that Jesus stops. He looks straight up into the tree, looks Zacchaeus in the eye, and addresses him by name. Zacchaeus had climbed into the tree just to get a, just to get a glimpse of Jesus. But here's Jesus looking straight at him. And we see that Jesus has a personal message for Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus might have thought that he was in control of that situation, but Jesus knew and brought him to that point. He doesn't call a nameless individual down from the tree, but he knows precisely who Zacchaeus is. The message is for him. Zacchaeus, come down, hurry up. And so it is that Jesus knows each and every one of us. As he deals with us, he doesn't deal with us as a shotgun, scattering his message to whoever may hear it. Jesus reaches out. He speaks to you. He speaks to me. Knowing the particular circumstances of the individual. He knew who Zacchaeus was and spoke to him by name. We could be here this evening out of passing curiosity, but Jesus knows who we are. He understands our circumstances. He knows the joys and cares of our lives. He knows what we're thinking of as we sit down in the chairs 
He knows the burdens that we, we carry through the week. And God, through Jesus, is able to reach out to us individually. And the second remarkable thing we find here is that Jesus tells Zacchaeus to come down out of the tree because he, the Lord Jesus, wants to stay in his house. Zacchaeus did nothing to contrive that meeting. It was Jesus who stopped and looked up into the tree. Jesus who called Zacchaeus by name and Jesus who then invites himself into Zacchaeus' home. Isn't that remarkable that the almighty God in the form of Christ invites himself to the home of a man like Zacchaeus who has turned his back on his religion and his God. One commentator has observed that this is the only place in the Bible that Jesus is recorded as offering himself uninvited as someone's guest. And the lesson here is that Jesus sometimes comes to those who aren't really looking for him. We've all had unwelcome guests at times, I'm sure. But what a welcome guest Jesus would have been to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, we read, doesn't need to be asked a second time. He doesn't need to take some time to think about it. He makes haste, comes down from the tree and embraces Jesus with joy. What about us if Jesus calls us, as indeed he does? Do we prevaricate about what we're going to do? Do we need God to keep calling again and again? Or like Zacchaeus, will we make haste, seize the moment? The excitement of Zacchaeus as he clambers down his tree is almost palpable, isn't it? Are we full of joy that Jesus has stopped under our tree and called us? Now it's clear that Zacchaeus' reputation went before him. The crowd around Jesus were quick to judge. Zacchaeus was a sinner and a pretty bad one at that. But if the crowd had doubts about Zacchaeus because of his reputation, Jesus had no doubts that he was a believer trusting in Christ Jesus as Saviour. Jesus had called him by name. And his life now was being turned upside down as he followed his new master. And that takes us to uh, the last part of the passage where we see that Zacchaeus' conversion is confirmed by his actions. Let's look at verses 8 and 9. Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, 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 here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. Zacchaeus, we read, makes some very dramatic decisions. It's important to remember that the declarations that Zacchaeus made didn't earn him any favour before God. The undertakings that Jesus, that Zacchaeus gave didn't atone for his past demeanours. It didn't make up for his sin. 
For Zacchaeus was as much a sinner as he'd ever been previously, as indeed we all are. These undertakings are signs or proofs of the reality of his conversion. Before encountering Jesus, Zacchaeus had been a self-seeking individual with no concern for God. But now out of gratitude for the grace that's been shown to him by Jesus, he seeks to do good to all and correct particular injustices that he might have carried out. The reference to fourfold restitution is very specific. I don't know if you notice that there. Uh, I think my, one of my daughters, when she reads this passage, tries to do the maths, and it, it sort of doesn't quite um, work out for her. But the fourfold restitution refers back to a verse in Exodus. Because there, a thief was required by law to restore a sheep which had been stolen four times only, over. So by this declaration, Zacchaeus is acknowledging that some of his goods have been acquired improperly. But this isn't the whole story. Under the law of Moses, because Zacchaeus was admitting his guilt, the penalty would have only been would have been stolen plus 20%. So under Mosaic law, if you owned up, the the penalty was abated. So we see here something of Zacchaeus' heart. He saw his sin as being so serious that it demanded restitution in the highest way. This man then, who'd been transformed through his encounter with Jesus, begins to show through his actions the fact that his conversion is true and genuine. These are actions which are spontaneous from his heart. He doesn't say that he is thinking of doing this. He just does it. I give half of my goods. He doesn't say that he will restore others fourfold if it's proved that he has done some, uh, something unjustly. He offers it freely of his heart. So the whole character of Zacchaeus is turned around. In Matthew 7.16, Jesus says, You will know them by their fruits, and every good tree bears good fruit. So we have in Zacchaeus, a man who has put his trust in Jesus, and his life shows forth that change by its fruit. And Jesus confirms this by the declaration he gives in verse 9. Did you see that? Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. On the odd occasion I visited Lewis in Scotland, you'll meet someone and they'll try and fit you in to society by who your ancestors are. There'll be a long pause and then, oh, you're the son of so-and-so or you're the brother of so-and-so. 
And in a way, for Jewish society, it was very similar. It was important to know where you fitted in. And for uh, a Jew, it was important to know how you fitted in to uh, the family line leading back to Abraham. So what does Jesus mean when he says, this man too is a son of Abraham? He said at the beginning that uh, that Zacchaeus almost certainly was a Jew. His name is Jewish. And uh, all the circumstances surrounding the story would indicate that. So surely he was a son of Abraham. Although Zacchaeus was a son of Abraham by birth, his sin, of course, as we referred to earlier, had separated him from his community and his God. As we read in Matthew, he was to be treated as one of the pagans, one of the heathen, because he was a tax collector. But now Jesus declares that Zacchaeus is a son of Abraham, not just because of his birth, but because of his faith. Abraham was a believer. He lived many centuries before these events in Jericho, before the coming of Christ. But in John 8, 56, Jesus is recorded as confirming that Abraham was a believer. Just like Christians today, Abraham rejoiced to see the coming of Christ. He saw it from a distance and was glad. Abraham wasn't just the first of the patriarchs, he was also a man of faith. He looked forward to the coming of Christ and he put his faith in God's ability to save him. So too Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus looked to Christ and put his faith in God's ability to save him, notwithstanding all that he had done, notwithstanding the fact that he turned his back on his God, turned his back on his community. So Jesus declares that Zacchaeus is of Abraham because Zacchaeus is also a man of faith. Someone looking to Jesus, someone obeying Jesus, someone following Jesus. And it's this faith in Jesus that brings about this change of heart which is now so evident in Zacchaeus' life. What can we learn from those verses? Well, firstly, there's a challenge to us to examine our lives. Zacchaeus' life was turned upside down It spoke volumes of what he believed. It spoke volumes of the love that he had for his Saviour. Now, we shouldn't be full of negative introspection. The Bible is remarkably frank 
in its assessment about our fallen human nature. As believers, we will struggle with sin. But Christ will bring about a change in our hearts. We will be transformed. I like the story of John Newton. He was, as many of you know, a slave trader who came to Christ in the midst of a severe storm at sea. And John Newton reflected, he said, I am not, when he was reflecting on the work of God in his heart, he said, I am not what I ought to be, but I'm not what, and I'm not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world, but still, I'm not what I once used to be, and by the grace of God, I am what I am. So there's a challenge in Nicodemus's transformation. But there's also a reassurance for us too. Because in Christ, we are joined to a wonderful community of God's people. Being a Christian is tough at times. The Lord Jesus said that if we follow him, the world will hate us. And that might be at work, it might be at school. There are all manner of circumstances uh, where we find ourselves at, at odds with those round about us. The world will hate you. But this story of Nicodemus gives us reassurance that we don't face this alone. For being a Christian... If we trust in Christ, we too will be declared a son of Abraham, part of this community of God's people. My heart sank when Andy began to preach last Sunday morning. Because he'd asked me to speak evening, and then he started telling the story of Matthew being called by Jesus. And I wondered if I should have chosen a different passage to look at this evening. But Andy assured me that I shouldn't be concerned about that and I'm glad, in a way, that uh, he said that. Because there's a helpful instruction in this coincidence. Matthew, Andy was looking at him last week in the morning, we read about that in Mark chapter 2, near the beginning of Christ's ministry. And here, as Christ encounters Zacchaeus and calls Zacchaeus, we are approaching the end of Christ's ministry. He's walking up to Jerusalem. And so in a way, those two events bookend both ends of Christ's ministry. There is a consistency there, isn't there? The Lord Jesus calling sinners. And uh, Jesus, we're told by the writer, is the same today, yesterday, today and forever. And so it's the same Jesus who stopped 
under Zacchaeus's sycamore tree and called Zacchaeus by name all those years ago, filling him with joy and transforming his life. This is the same Jesus who calls us today. We're going to close. Let's, sorry, let's just uh, pray together now.